Is it the possible end of a controversial immigration policy? Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The U.S. government is trying to wind down Title 42, an immigration policy implemented at the start of the pandemic that disallows asylum for hundreds of thousands. We're going to talk with a Palm Beach County attorney who sees her immigrant clients affected by this and what happens next. Also, what is Cryptopia? WLRN's Latin American editor Tim Padgett explains how more Latin countries are trying to get into cryptocurrency. But first, protests are growing nationally after a draft opinion was leaked from the U.S. Supreme Court that could lead to the end of Roe v. Wade. What does that mean for people seeking abortion in Florida? All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. It's the story that everybody is talking about. A leaked draft opinion by the nation's highest court indicates a possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. That could change the United States in a massive way. That landmark case confirmed the right to access to abortion in the country. A reversal of this kind would give states the power to individually decide the legality of this procedure. We're discussing how this would impact Florida with a professor from the University of Miami College of Law, Caroline Malik-Horbin. She specializes in constitutional law and has a background in reproductive rights. And she joins us now. Caroline, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. This draft leaked on Monday, late Monday. Have you ever seen a situation like this where an opinion leaks ahead of time? Um, I haven't seen it during my legal lifetime, but it has happened before in the past. Not recently, though, and certainly not with a case of this magnitude. Why was there an opinion in the first place? Was the court debating Roe v. Wade right now? Well, the way the court works is that after they hear an argument, they take a poll as to how people think they may vote. And then based on that poll, someone is assigned to write a draft. And then once they have a draft, they circulate it to others and others can either join it, comment on it, uh, try and pressure the main draft to shift in some sort of way. So it's part of the usual internal process of the Supreme Court to have a rough draft to start with. So at some point they were debating Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. I mean, the, the question is before them in the case that they heard, so they will definitely have to think about Roe v. Wade, and um, the, they would have to decide either to, the, the case that they heard Which is, are you, ta- are, you ta- them, are you talking about the Mississippi case? Yeah, so okay. the, the Supreme Court heard a case where Mississippi had banned abortion at 15 weeks, and under current law, it is unconstitutional to ban abortion before viability, which is at 24 weeks. So they were already dealing with a law that challenged the existing rules regarding abortion. So they were already faced with the question of whether they wanted to uphold the current abortion law or whether they wanted to change it. But in this case, we're looking at the possibility of just reversing Roe v. Wade completely, right? 
Exactly. They they had a couple, they had at least three options. One was to strike the law down and reaffirm the current rules. Second, they could have upheld the law while still maintaining some protection for abortion. Or the option that is exhibited in this draft, they could completely eliminate protection for abortion, which is what they seem to be heading towards. The, the draft that we all saw said unambiguously, Roe was egregious from the day it was decided, and we are overruling it now. In reading this opinion, what jumped out at you most? Um, there's quite a lot that jumped out at me. Uh, one of <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's pick one. Let's pick one that 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 you want to chat about. Um, well, one. I mean, first, um, to overrule a case, it, the Supreme Court has overruled cases in the past, but it hasn't usually overruled cases to take away fundamental rights. So it is really striking that they were so willing to do that and so willing to do it without a really strong reason. Usually if the Supreme Court is overruling long established precedent, it has to have a good reason, which it defines as either there's been a significant change in the facts, there's been a significant change in the law, or the existing law was somehow not workable. These would be principled reasons to reverse long-standing precedent, but none of those seem present in this case. So this very much seemed like decision where they're overruling not for any of the usual reasons, but merely because they had enough votes to do so. And and we have seen it before, uh, you know, on things like same-sex marriage or, or Brown v. Board of Education, right? Yes, but in those cases, when they were reversing or overruling prior cases, they were doing so to expand rights. Brown versus Board of Education overruled Plessy v. Ferguson, but that was to eliminate state-mandated segregation. Obergefell was overruling earlier cases that would not recognize same-sex marriage. Well, that was a major shift in the doctrine to expand rights. This is a extraordinary reversal of the law to take away one of the most important rights for women in this country. Justice Alito's argument, uh, his 98-page opinion, um, what do you think of his argument? Is it, is it something that could hold up or can you tear it down easily? Um, I am a law professor. I can obviously tear it down easily. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that you're saying that it's taking away rights, but I mean, when you look at the way he, he presented yeah, so his, let me, his argument. So, so a little, little background, right? So the U.S. Constitution protects individual rights. We all understand that. It protects both rights that are explicitly listed in the Constitution, like the right to free speech in the First Amendment or um, sort of, right? So it, so it protects explicitly listed rights. It also protects rights that are not listed in the Constitution. So the question then becomes, 
which rights that are not explicitly listed in the Constitution are protected. And there are different ways to go about deciding what should be considered the fundamental rights that are protected by the US Constitution. And Justice Alito chose the most narrow way of, of deciding which rights are protected and which rights are not. And he chose the most narrow way in two different ways. First, he defined the right, uh, so, so the, uh, I should say, the test he used was, is this right deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition? And if the right is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, then he said it would be protected by the Constitution. But if the right is not deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, then it's not. And so he asked, is the right to abortion deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition? He examines history and he concludes that no, the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Therefore, it is not a fundamental right. And therefore, the US Constitution does not protect it. There are a lot of different critiques to make about this. First, his survey of history is questionable. I'm not a historian, so I can't really deconstruct his the weaknesses of his historical analysis. So I'll instead focus on the legal analysis. But one problem is his history might be somewhat suspect. But what I was talking about was how narrowly he understood fundamental rights. Because when you're trying to decide whether a right is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, a lot turns on how you frame the right. So take, for example, um, marriage, same-sex marriage. If you ask the question, is the right to same-sex marriage deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition? The answer will be no. If you frame it a little more broadly, is the right to marriage deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition? The answer would be yes. The same thing applies with reproductive rights. You could frame it narrowly as he did, is the right to abortion deeply rooted in our nation's history tradition? And according to his, I think, cherry picking of history, the answer was no. Um, had he framed it even a little bit more broadly as, is the right to bodily autonomy deeply rooted in our nation's history? Or the right to make major life decisions about whether or not to have children? The answer there would be yes, it is deeply rooted in our nation's history tradition. So his first problem is he defined the right really narrowly. And the second problem is the test he's using is the right deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Because the question is, why should our fundamental rights be limited to only those that have existed for a really long time? And let's be honest, we have a very problematic history. If our history is racist and sexist and homophobic, then why are we looking to history to decide to decide our fundamental rights. And so again, my two main critiques is he defined it really narrowly. He used a test that looks only to history and he defined the right really narrowly. 
And you get the sense that this could go on and on, but it's also it, there's a feeling like this is going to get pressed forward a lot faster uh, than, than people may expect. Again, I'm talking with Caroline uh, Mala Corbin, professor at the University of Miami School of Law, teaching U.S. constitutional law and advanced topics in reproductive rights. Talking again about this leaked draft of opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court that indicates a possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. Learn more about this, by the way, on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Okay, so since the leak, some some groups in Florida have called on Governor Ron DeSantis to press the state legislature to approve a near total ban on abortions in the state uh, in, in this upcoming special session later this month. The governor's not publicly responded to the request, but if something like this were to happen, Florida would, would could join 13 other states that have what are called trigger laws. Please explain what those are. So a trigger law is a law written in anticipation of the Supreme Court eliminating the federal constitutional protection for abortion. And these laws usually say, if Roe v. Wade is overruled, then abortion is illegal in this state. And so they're outlawing abortion if and when Roe v. Wade is overruled. There was another landmark decision, Supreme Court decision on abortion that was mentioned too in this uh, opinion. It was the 1992 ruling Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Remind us briefly of that case, what that case affirmed and how it plays into this opinion. Um, so Roe v. Wade was the Supreme Court decision that established the right to abortion. And Casey it, 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 Casey was faced with the question in Casey was not so different than the one we had now. It wasn't clear if the Supreme Court was going to reaffirm Roe or overrule it. It did, in fact, reaffirm that the right to abortion was protected by the U.S. Constitution. But at the same time, it um, sort of enfeebled the pre protection for abortion. So it still protected abortion, but just not as much as Roe had. So those are the two main cases that established the right. And so to overrule one, to overrule Roe means to overrule all the subsequent cases that have said, yes, abortion is protected by the federal constitution, this, Casey being one of the most important ones. This opinion, this document is not supposed to be seen by the public. The fact that it leaked, how, how is that, how could that impact public trust in the court? Uh, I think the greater problem with public trust in the court is when the Supreme Court makes decisions based on politics rather than principle. So I'm much more concerned with the content of the decision than the fact that it was leaked. Do we know how many justices agreed with this leaked opinion? Well, it's written as the majority. So there are at least five justices who seem to be, at least at that first vote, willing to eliminate constitutional protection entirely. Although, again, it's important to note that this is just a initial draft and not yet the official ruling. So how likely... From what we know, is the actual how likely is it that Roe v. Wade could be reversed, and what would be the timeline? Um, honestly, I suspect it's highly likely. 
And usually the Supreme Court saves its most controversial decisions to the very end of its term, which would mean the end of June or the very beginning of July. A story that we will be following very closely from now until then. Uh, Caroline, I really appreciate all of the insight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, Caroline Mala-Corbin, she's a professor at the University of Miami School of Law. All right, well, still to come, how the possible ending of an immigration policy could affect families in Palm Beach County. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. The Biden administration is hoping to wind down an immigration policy. What does that mean for people here in South Florida? Title 42 has allowed the U.S. Border Patrol to turn away hundreds of thousands of migrants attempting to enter the United States at the U.S.-Mexico border these past two years during the pandemic. That data is kept by the Pew Research Center. In Palm Beach County, especially in areas with higher numbers of undocumented immigrants like Pahokee and Belle Glade, this policy shift could change things for separated families. Adriana Gonzalez joins us now to explain more about this. She's a partner at Gonzalez and Cartwright PA that has offices in Palm Beach County and Pompano Beach. Adriana, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So just to start, you're not an immigration attorney. You you litigate injury cases and wrongful death cases. But how, how does Title 42 impact your clients, the day to day you see? That's right. So I am not an immigration lawyer, but I am an immigrant myself and my office being here in Palm Beach County and in Broward County. We have the privilege of representing a lot of uh, undocumented clients and we, you know, see it from the perspective of how their lives are affected by this broken immigration system that keeps them separated and oftentimes, you know, keeps some family here while the remaining family members are back home, Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, and in very dangerous situations. So, you know, the pressure on the family members here is really great. And then you take that and you couple it with, you know, somebody who has suffered a significant injury here, who's perhaps no longer able to um, support support the family back home, um, you know, and, and even worse cases than that. Can you give me an example? I mean, I want to get a sense of how, uh, you know, again, you have families that are divided, uh, but again, whatever someone is experiencing here in the United States, how this, uh, the changing of Title 42, what it could mean to them and their family back home. But what do you tend to see? Like, well, I'll give you an example of something that came up recently that I think still, I think will probably haunt me for forever. And that, you know, was a family where the father slash husband was here in the United States working. The mother and the minor daughter were back in Guatemala. He was unfortunately tragically killed in a auto accident. And, um, you know, we we represented the family in the wrongful death case. Now, when we were able to reach a resolution with the at-fault parties and their insurance companies, <clears throat> you know, the, the family luckily was able to 
get monetarily compensated for the loss of their family member, but then they were left back in Guatemala without the ability to seek asylum, keeping them in, you know, great harm because they were coming into this settlement, but had no ability to then make a quick asylum case. So, so that's, you know, where we see it, you know, something here in the United States triggers something for the family back home. And, and without being able to come here and seek asylum, it really creates a very dangerous situation for, for the family back home. Are, are these communication issues, safety issues typical in cases like this? Well, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, the communication issues, of course, you know, we, we represented the family back in Guatemala in a smaller town. Um, so just representing them and being able to convey to the other side what the loss of their, you know, family member here meant to them and lack of emotional support, but also that financial support, right, um, it, it is complicated. But then even when you feel like you should, you know, you're, you're reaching a settlement, you're getting them justice, you're getting them compensation, you're, you could technically be putting them in a worse situation when they're not allowed to apply for asylum under Title 42, which is supposed to be, you know, a, a rule in place to protect us from, you know, an illness, an outbreak, not necessarily, you know, as an immigration bill. No, exactly. I, I wondered, the people you deal with, do they understand, you know, what Title 42 is and, and how it's supposed to work? Because as you described, I mean, it's it's meant to protect the United States like during a pandemic like we did by keeping not allowing people in seeking asylum because they may spread the disease. But over the last two years, what we've seen is more than a million people, you know, sent back across the border uh, and not even given a chance to ask for asylum. But do, do the folks you deal with, do they understand what's happening? You know, I, I think that oftentimes the people that we have, you know, the opportunity to meet are in such desperate situations that they're not really thinking about, you know, is the United States acting under Title 42 or Title VIII or remain in Mexico policy, they're just desperate, right? And you see it when you see unaccompanied minor children coming, like you you have to think, what kind of situation must the parents be in that they're willing to send their unaccompanied minor children um, to America? And so I don't know if they look at it in that way. I think they just look at it as you know, they're in desperate situations and they're trying to seek refuge here in the United States. And, so, you know, so we're they... using Title 42 to keep certain people out. Right. So we're relying on a on a health act, on a health law that was created to um, give the government a quicker structure to deal with the spread of of, of diseases. But we are not you know, the borders, the borders are not closed. The, the ports are open to people from all over. This is just being used to target a specific group of people 
um, primarily, you know, from Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras, people coming from the southern border. Because I, I wonder when they talk to you, if, you know, what, like, do they talk about any concerns they have as Title 42 winds down? Do they talk about or ask about how this will impact their families? Uh, I, I, I guess, like, do they understand even the basics of our laws? Or it just sounds to me like you're saying they're just desperate. Maybe they don't. I, I, you know, some people may may have a different experience. I feel like my experience and having represented thousands of these people and, you know, my, my law firm is here and I wanted it here because I wanted to be involved in my community. Again, I'm also an immigrant myself and I just happen to be very fortunate that, you know, my family was able to obtain legal status. I don't know if they look at it from the perspective of, okay, well, right now it's, you know, my family is going to get turned away because they're implementing Title 42 to keep people um, out from the southern border. I think that they're just looking for an opportunity to make it to safety, right? And so whenever that opportunity seems right. So maybe they make the trip here and they're getting turned away, but that just happened to be the moment when they could come. So I don't, I don't think that they look at it from that perspective. And I know that there is fear that there is going to be like this giant influx of people coming once title 42 ends. Um, But I don't know, you know, if, if the people that are coming here actually look at it from that perspective, I think, again, they're desperate. They're, they don't necessarily have the luxury of deciding, oh, well, you know, let me, let me uh, make the trip three months from now. That's not really what I see from the people that I get to meet. Right. And, and from stories we've heard in the past, too, it's the information that people in other countries maybe getting about our policies or what's happening it, very different than what we understand obviously again i'm talking with adriana gonzalez a partner at gonzalez and cartwright pa in palm beach county in pompano beach she's an attorney who litigates injury cases but we're talking about how she sees a lot of title 42 issues come up for her clients and what that looks like in palm beach county And you can find out more about Title 42 on our social media at WLRN Sundial. You know, you you talk about you have your personal story. This is a this is personal for you. Why why you're involved in this advocacy work? That's right. You know, my family came from Colombia and I came here as a young child in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And Colombia was a very dangerous place to be. And I I understand that, you know, and. I empathize with the families that are not as lucky as mine, who, you know, we just happen to be able to get legal status by a miracle. And that's really what our immigration system is right now. It's like a miracle. You you need a miracle in order to uh, get legal status. And so whenever people talk about, you know, why don't you just get in line or why don't you just do it the right way? There is no line. There is no way to do it the right way and and it's something that we definitely have to fix and you know we can go on and on and talk about it forever but you know we're you know on one hand we complain about you know the supply chain the labor shortage and then at the same time we make it impossible for american businesses to get employees 
by keeping this broken immigration system. And so, you know, you would have to be, you know, completely blind and deaf to not see that, especially here in Florida, you know, our economy is completely dependent on immigrant labor, construction, tourism, agriculture. You know, here in Palm Beach County, we see a lot of that. Um, and so there, you know, we're, we're creating a one problem with the labor shortage by not addressing the immigration system that we have. Now, coming coming back to Title 42, it's it was winding down. There was pushback from a number of states uh, and Republicans to slow that process. So, you know, to get an exact timeline of when that might happen, we're not sure. But um, what do you think? One, if once it does, if, if that's the case, if it does happen uh, and, and it's finally sunsetted, then what? What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, we we saw last week when Secretary Mayorkas was testifying before Congress and their release of that 20 page memo that explains how the Biden administration plans to handle the, you know, what what people are concerned with, the influx of people coming and how to deal with the concerns over COVID. And so you see, you know, that they intend on adding, you know, reinforcements at the border. And you have, you know, now talking about the vaccination of migrants coming. And you have the intention is not to just let everyone stay and it's certainly not an open border they actually want to um you know focus more on the expedited removal of people who cannot make an asylum claim or, or show that credible fear that they initially have to show so i mean i think they intend on reinforcing the borders they plan on doing more testing and vaccinating of migrants they plan on um, you know, expedited processing of these migrants so they can figure out, okay, who can establish, you know, a credible sense of fear and then who, you know, needs to be removed. And by moving away from Title 42, it'll allow the government to, you know, prosecute people who have tried to, you know, enter before. So those people, you know, that are charged with, you know, multiple attempts to enter. And it gives the government the ability to decide, um, you know, who who should be sent back, who should be detained. Does it work? Who, does it, does it work retroactively though for for the folks who were trying to get in these last couple of years and and were seeking asylum? Well, you know, there are people who were just denied the right to apply for asylum under Title Forty Two. Right. And of course, there's the people that were you know, process under the Remain in Mexico policy, those people who have applied for asylum, but, you know, are being forced to to wait out the process in, in Mexico. That case is also before the Supreme Court. So there's that case, the Remain in policy case that's before the Supreme Court. Then there, is, you know, there's the case right now waiting to see if the Biden administration can end Title 42. Um, and so it, it's yet to be determined how, if Title 42 ends, is allowed to end, 
you know, whether these people will then be processed under the Remain in Mexico policy or if they can go back to just the regular, you know, Title VIII and, mm. um, processing. You have, you've worked with uh, the county commission and the, the sheriff's office to make Palm Beach County friendlier, more livable for people living with undocumented status. Uh, like, what kind of changes have, have you been able to create? How has that worked? Yes, you know, um, one of the things that we're very proud of that we've been able to do here is, you know, we were able to get the county commission to approve what we call the community ID. And so basically for anybody, regardless of whether they have legal status or not, who's unable to get a state issued ID, um, they're able to get a community ID and they do get processed. So they do have to show proof of identification and they do have to prove that they're residents of Palm Beach County. But they're if they're able to prove their identity and prove that they're residents of Palm Beach County, they're able to get the community ID. So it's just a way for them to have some sort of proof of identification that then the county government will accept. So for instance, if you, you know, are the witness of a crime and you need to talk to the police, you can show the police that ID and that'll, you know, be good enough to prove your identity. If you want to, you know, get a library card, a county library card, you can use that ID to do so. And it helps, you know, if you, want to have your sister, for example, pick up your child from school, it allows, you know, that aunt to show the school that ID so that they can then, you know, prove, okay, this child is being picked up by the aunt and she is who she says and, she is. And, you, and talk, so, you talked about going to like law enforcement because there usually is a fear of that or like if they have to go to a hospital, now there's no fear of anything. You just show the ID. Correct. You can't in today's world, you can't even go to the doctor's office without showing some sort of ID. So for people that haven't been able to get a state issued ID, and again, it's not just for people here without legal status, oftentimes, you know, senior citizen that they've lost all their paperwork, people who have gotten out of prison, just homeless people, people that just have no way of tracking down their documents they can at least get this community ID and it allows them to be able to prove their identity when doing things like going to the doctor, talking to the police Let, and, and things that we take for granted. You know really. what? Yeah. Coming back though. So look again, title 42 may be winding down maybe, but COVID's not over and there are new variants and, and people are still worried about the spread of the virus. So how would the U S handle this shift? Are we expecting higher numbers of people to come into the U.S. if the policy is ended? Well, I mean, I think that they that they are and they say that they are. You know, again, I see it from a different perspective. I don't see people who are like planning out when to come. They just kind of come when they can. But, um, you know, I think that the Biden administration understands people's concerns about COVID more so than the previous administration. Right. And so, the, the, the reality of COVID is that you're not keeping it out by denying people from seeking asylum from the southern border, right? People are allowed to travel into the United States from all over the world. And COVID is already here. And we have 
higher numbers than a lot of other countries. So I think using Title 42 as an excuse is really not keeping the American people safe from COVID, especially now that we have the ability to quarantine, you know, we, we can detain them and keep them in quarantine. We can do rapid tests. We have the vaccine. So it's it's really not, I underst- I certainly understand being concerned about COVID. I myself, you know, was very careful and have been for the last two years and I'm fully vaccinated and, and my kids are and we've taken it very seriously, but I don't feel that we're any safer by using this law to target just specific people when everybody else in the world can travel into the United States and we already have COVID here. We have the ability to test, we have the vaccine. So um, I understand COVID being a concern and I understand what that does for you know, the midterm elections and the concerns that maybe some within the Democratic Party have, but the reality is, is that this is not keeping anybody safe from COVID. Adriana Gonzalez, attorney in Palm Beach County. Adriana, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. All right, you as well. And again, you can follow more on the story of Title 42 on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, why more Latin countries are trying to get into the cryptocurrency world. Hint, it could mean a workaround on trade embargoes. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. You know, it started in El Salvador when they became the first Latin country to make Bitcoin part of their currency. Now, Panama and Brazil are considering it. And these same world leaders have dreams of creating Bitcoin cities and crypto utopias or cryptopias. But what exactly does that mean? Well, joining me now is WLRN's America's editor, Tim Paget. Tim Help me understand this, because I've never heard the terms. Bitcoin city, crypto utopias. I feel like I'm at a theme park, man. <laughs> Maybe in a way you are. I don't know. All right. So what, I mean, Bitcoin, what's a Bitcoin city? Bitcoin city is this vision that uh, Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele has to build a community uh, near a picturesque volcano on the Pacific coast of El Salvador, a community that whose economy will be run solely on Bitcoin. That will be the only legal currency there. And it will be a showcase, he feels, um, of how cryptocurrency can be a better engine for development, economic development for countries, particularly small, poor countries like El Salvador, than what's been offered to us for centuries by the conventional financial system. And cryptopias, is that the same thing? Well, that's what uh, a lot of people are calling efforts or projects like Bitcoin City, a cryptopia, a cryptocurrency utopia where people who believe in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin can gather, create communities and show the world that this is the way, uh, this is the financial way into the, you know, the rest of the 21st century. This is the future for how money should operate in this world. Wait, did I just hear you say that they wanted to build something near a volcano? Right, and one of the reasons they want to build it near the volcano is that they, Bukele believes they can use the geothermal energy inside that volcano, not just to power the city, but more importantly, to power 
the gigantic amount of computer power that it takes to uh, create or, or what they call mine uh, Bitcoin, because Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they are digital or virtual currencies. And so to, to create them, you have to mine them using incredibly complicated mathematical algorithms that take an incredible amount of electrical computer power. And the, 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 the belief being that this the geothermal energy at this volcano would be the eco way to do that. Use a volcano to charge up your computer. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Um, all right, so El Salvador was the first country, Latin American country, to bring pit Bitcoin into its system. Okay, uh, what's happened so far? Is it working? Well, I mean, by all estimates and, and all uh, analyses, uh, unfortunately for Bukele, uh, it's, it's been uh, rated pretty much a bust. Uh, this all started back in September, and since then, they've created uh, an app for, um, uh, for, for Salvadorans to obtain and use Bitcoin in transactions. The app is called the Chivo Wallet. Um, but unfortunately, studies are showing that very few Salvadorans are using it. And more important, very few Salvadorans who Bitcoin theoretically is supposed to help empower, meaning the, quote, unbanked people. One of the reasons Bitcoin is so popular uh, as a notion in Latin America is that about 70 percent of the population is what we call unbanked. They don't have uh, formal bank accounts. They don't have credit cards. And so the feeling is that maybe Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, um, because it's, it's, it's separate from the traditional financial system, which admittedly doesn't do a lot to include that 70% of the population into the formal economy, that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency could be a way to get these people into the formal economy. But, but, Unfortunately, but, studies are showing that, that so far Bitcoin uh, is, is, is not achieving that uh, in El Salvador. Very few people of that unbanked category are, are using the app. And that's the other thing is, I mean, in, with crypto, you need a you need a digital wallet. So right. you're not banked, but you still need something to put the money in. OK, Panama's Congress is now allowing for that country to use it. What? But what? what's the government there thinking about? What do they want to do? Well, what they want to do mainly is try to create a they're, they're not doing it the same way in El Salvador. It's act, it's legal tender right now. You have if you're a store owner or a merchant or a business, you have to accept Bitcoin along with the other uh, currency in El Salvador, which is the U.S. dollar. Panama is not going that far. What they're saying is um, it can be uh, accepted, um, uh, but under under tighter regulations. And one of those regulations that they're trying to do differently than El Salvador is try to control or manage a little better the volatile value of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. These, these cryptocurrencies have a real reputation for having really wild value swings, roller coaster swings up and down. And that makes it very hard to create any sort of reliability uh, or any confidence, uh, particularly you know if you're trying to sell this to not just you know savvy investors, but but to the average person like you and me, and so Panama is the Panamanian Congress has has come up with what they feel are regulations that would manage that a little better, and we'll see if the president of Panama signs it and and, and makes it law. And there are plenty of stories I could point to of cryptocurrencies that were fraud. Um, Unfortunately, in, yes. In all of these cases, Tim, how much of it's just crypto investors in the U.S. that are 
going into all these other countries looking for opportunities? Well, that's one of the criticisms of the big effort to create, quote, cryptopias in Puerto Rico, for example, the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. Um, you've got a lot of people in the U.S., on the U.S. mainland, people like uh, the former Hollywood actor Brock Pierce, who have made millions with Bitcoin, investing in Bitcoin. They want to now go to places like Puerto Rico and create their own cryptopias, communities where Bitcoin will be king. Uh, so far, nothing really has come of it. And, and the one thing that has come of it, as, as media like The Washington Post have, have reported in recent months, is that these sort of rich outsiders are coming into Puerto Rican communities like San Juan and they're, where they're promoting Bitcoin communities, they're actually driving up real estate prices and rent and making it uh, harder for, for locals to, to afford living there. Uh, so that unfortunately is, is, has been the headline of the past few months. And it's put a, put a damper on, on, as you said, a lot of the hype surrounding uh, you know, the promotion of crypto communities or cryptopias. What's going on in Brazil? That is much right now. The lower house of, of Congress there in Brazil has uh, approved the use of, of cryptocurrency. Uh, and we're waiting for the uh, Senate now. And that could probably happen this month. Uh, the question is whether um the incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, whether he'll see signing that legislation as advantageous to his re-election, uh, the election campaign or the election coming up in October. Uh, chances are he probably will because he's down in the polls and I think he's looking for ways to uh, you know, rev up his campaign. So this, this could be happening in Brazil as well. All right. What about the, the the other problem, too, with crypto is that, you know, obviously the criminal element can use it uh, to hide, hide their money, their purchases, launder money. What about that? Is there a fear that it's just, you know, we're going to see the criminal element in other countries just take advantage of this? Well, the fraud element is always a concern whenever you're dealing with something sort of uh uh, out of the mainstream like this that is not, you know, the main thing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is that they're not controlled by government central banks or any institutions of that sort. They're only controlled by the people who use them. And the, the transactions are monitored on what's, what's called the blockchain, uh, part of that process that I was talking about that takes so much <laughs> computer power. And because it is sort of off the grid, that way, um, there is that fear that that fraud um, could could be a constant companion of all this, and that's why back in March, um, President Biden signed an executive order on quote ensuring responsible development of digital assets, and uh, he, he's he's sort of directed agencies like the Treasury Department to start coming up with recommendations on how to manage this uh, so that it doesn't get fraudulent. You know what? Talking about fraud, though, I mean, skipping that part, I thought the other aspect that you brought up that was interesting is Cuba. Could they use crypto to work around the U.S. embargo? Theoretically, yes, uh, because, again, it's off the conventional international financial grid. So if they're facing the U.S. embargo on things like, you know, transactions for uh, buying uh 
products from from Europe or other parts of the world and then selling whatever they've got to sell to other parts of the world. Uh, they with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, they might not have to worry about those embargo restrictions on whether or not, you know, the, the person that I'm uh, selling something to in Europe is banned from buying it from Cuba because that would threaten his ability to do business with the United States. Cryptocurrency could could help them get around that. Um, the only problem being that uh, Venezuela tried something similar a few years ago with their own cryptocurrency called the Petro, and it failed miserably. Because, but it was wasn't it linked to their it was the, the oil industry? Yes. Okay. Theoretically. The, coming back to what you said, the U.S. is trying to put its clamps on this and put some more regulation on it. If they're successful at that, how does that affect El Salvador or Panama or Brazil? I think it could actually work in their favor uh, for these smaller countries because if the U.S. is sort of given this regulatory seal of approval, it raises the confidence level, the credibility level, I think, on dealing with cryptocurrency. And that could help the Salvadors and the Panamas and the Hondurases uh, sell it to foreign investors more confidently and with more credibility themselves. You know what? And just real quickly, just I just thought of this. I mean, we come back to what we said here, what we've been reporting here in Miami, such a push by Miami to go mm-hmm. crypto. How, you know, and of course, the link all these countries have to Miami. Uh, how how is that playing out, or how do you see that playing out? Well, even Miami under under Mayor Suarez's uh, big plans to to make cryptocurrency more of an established part of the financial scene here uh, has had its troubles again with those wildly volatile value swings. Uh, for Bitcoin. And even Mayor Suarez himself has admitted that that's a problem. The difference, though, being that, you know, this is a this is a developed economy here and we can we can handle and absorb those value swings better than than poor developing countries like like El Salvador can. So those factors that might hurt uh, El Salvador's ability to uh, make Bitcoin an effective currency aren't aren't so um, aren't so heavy here. It may just be the future. Who knows? We'll see. But it's a fascinating story, by the way. If you want to read more about it, uh, check out Tim Paget's story on the website, WLRN.org. Tim, thank you for the insight. Thank you, Lewis. Again, WLRN's America's editor, Tim Paget. I'm still thinking about the volcano charging the computer, though. But anyway, that's our program for this Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. Coming up tomorrow on the show... South Florida has become the most expensive city for renters. We're worse than New York now. What can local politicians do to ease that burden? Also, it's Wildlife Thursday, and this week we're discussing a species you can only find in the Florida Keys, the key deer. That's all coming up tomorrow on the show. Don't forget, by the way, that uh, we got our book club going on. We are reading for this month, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami by Robin Farzad. Check us out on Facebook. Look up Sundial Book Club. Ask to join. It's free. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.